From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger in for Terry Gross. Today, director Chinoya Chuku. Her new film Till tells the story of Emmett Till, the 14-year-old boy from Chicago who was lynched in Mississippi in 1955 while visiting relatives. Chuku makes Emmett's mother, Mamie Till Mobley, the center of the story how she insisted that his mutilated body be photographed and displayed in an open casket for his funeral. The photograph was published in Jet magazine and awakened the world to a horrific reality the Black community knew all too well. Also, we'll hear from Ramona Emerson. Her first novel, Shudder, is about a police department photographer who, like Emerson, grew up in the Navajo Nation. In the story, the photographer is haunted by the ghost of a victim from the crime scene she's photographed. And Ken Tucker will review Taylor Swift's new album. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger in for Terry Gross. For generations, the story of Emmett Till's lynching was told as a cautionary tale that starts with an image of Till's mutilated body in an open casket. The 14-year-old who was from Chicago was murdered in 1955 for allegedly flirting with a white woman while visiting family in Mississippi. 67 years later, a new movie tells the story of Emmett Till through the lens of his mother, Mamie Till Mobley. Till was co-written and directed by Chinoya Chuku, who makes Emmett Till's mother the protagonist, illustrating how her decisions became a catalyst for the civil rights movement. Chuku sat down to talk about the movie with guest interviewer and host of the podcast Truth Be Told, Tanya Mosley. Like most Black people in America, Chinoya Chuku grew up learning about the story of Emmett Till. But what she and fewer people knew was the journey of Emmett's mother, Mamie Till Mobley, before and after her son was lynched. In the summer of 1955, 14-year-old Emmett Till took the train from his hometown of Chicago to Mississippi to spend a few weeks with relatives. Before leaving, his mother, Mamie, gives him a set of directions on how to behave while down south. Here's a clip of Mamie, played by Danielle Deadweiler, talking to Emmett, played by Jalen Hall, who she calls by his nickname, Bo. <laughs> All right, now you're going to miss your train. Bo, when you get down oh, there... not again, Mama. I've already been to Mississippi. Only one time before, and you started a fight with another little boy. He was picking on me. You're in the right to stand up for yourself, but that's not what I'm talking about. They have a different set of rules for Negroes down there. Are you listening? Yes. You have to be extra careful with white people. You can't risk looking at them the wrong way. I know. Oh. Be small down there. That was a clip from the new movie Till, co-written and directed by Chinoya Chuku. This is Chuku's third film. She was the writer and director of Alaska Land and the 2019 film Clemency, a movie about the unraveling of a prison warden struggling with the emotional demands of her job. Chuku, a Nigerian-American from Fairbanks, Alaska, won the 2019 Dramatic Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival for Clemency, making Chuku the first black woman to win. Chinoya Chuku, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Oh, well, thank you for being here. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Emmett was murdered 67 years ago. Why did it take so long to produce a film? Well, (laughs) I, I think it's a lot of different reasons that include 
the powers that be not valuing the story, not valuing black people's stories and humanities on screen. Um, the, the story is one that is, is a reflection of a very painful reality, uh, history and reality of this country and, and of our world that I'm sure that there were moments when there might have been studios who didn't want to show that on screen or address that, you know, um, and also figuring out the, the, the right way to tell the story, the best way to tell the story. Um, I know it's taken some time, but I think it's all of those reasons and more. When Orion Pictures approached you to direct, you, you said you'd only do it if it centered Emmett's mother, Mamie Till Mobley. That goes back to you saying the direction of the film and the point of view was something that needed to be figured out. You were ignited by this challenge of making a Black mother the hero in a hero's journey. You actually call it a character study. Why did you want to focus on her? Well, without Mamie Till Mobley, the world wouldn't know who Emmett Till was. So I knew that she was the heartbeat of the story, the core, the foundation. And it is her work, her courage after his lynching that helped become a catalyst for the modern American civil rights movement. And yet she and other black women are so often erased from history and erased from stories that involve movement building and civil rights. And so I really wanted to center her, a black woman in her rightful place in history. Mamie Till Mobley died in 2003. And As you said, much of what we know about her is from that very short window of time in her life. What are some details that you learned about her during your research for this film? One of the big things that I learned that Danielle Deadweiler, the actress who plays Mamie, um, and I talked about a lot, was the complex negotiations she had to make between her public and private self her presentational self and who she was in private. And she's navigating a lot of different kind of masks that she's having to put on as a black woman in the world, a black woman in America. Um, So for instance, when she goes to Mississippi for the trial and it's at this predominantly white hostile space and she is very much aware of those gazes and her presentational self in that space versus who she is when she's all by herself versus who she is when she's with her child versus when she's with her partner, Jean, family, et cetera, et cetera. There are these constant negotiations she's having to make. And I mean, there's a scene in the film where Mamie is having a conversation with Huff, um, who's a legal counsel for the NAACP, and he's vetting her, essentially, and based on how he thinks people will come at her, how the media, how he thinks the media will come at her, and so wanting to make sure that she's ready to face that. And, And those kinds of racist, sexist negotiations that Mamie's going to have to navigate the, you know, the angry black woman stereotype, the Jezebel stereotype, and this kind of policing of her body language and the way she looks. And all of that is absolutely what I and so many black women in the world are constantly navigating in our lives to this day. And, And so I really, really empathized with Mamie in that way. Can you remind us of the events 
at the general store in Money, Mississippi that precipitated Emmett's lynching. He was just being a child with his cousins, you know, and they they went to go get some snacks. And he was someone who was a jokester and loved movies. And he saw someone who looked like a movie star that he had watched on the screen. And um, he said as much to himself. And then, you know, his, his cousins drag him out because he's breaking this code of, you know, talking to this white woman. And then as they leave... He was playing a joke and, and, and whistled. And then they, she, Carolyn Bryant, um, went for a gun. And that led to all of the customers who were all black to run away and to try to save their lives. In life and in the film, after Emmettil is murdered, Mamie insists that his body is brought home to Chicago from Mississippi And when she saw it, I mean, it was mutilated beyond recognition, and she made this decision to have an open casket. And then she called on Jet Magazine, who put that photo on the front cover. And we know that many families saved that cover. They framed it. They hung it on their walls as a reminder. And really, it's a reminder of Mamie's bravery and indignation. What Mamie did you call critical care. Can you explain what you mean when you say critical care? So she wanted the world to witness what happened to her child so then this can stop happening to other Black children, Black people. And so it was out of care and love that she has for Black people and Black lives and Black humanity. It was not a voyeuristic, objectifying look at her her son. It was, we need to take action and come together and stop this. And I think that that is a care, a a place that's coming from a place of care um, and action. One striking thing about the film is that we never see the violence of Emmett being murdered. You intentionally decided not to show the brutality of what happened. Yeah, I mean, I, I knew that the physical violence that was inflicted upon Emmett was not a necessary or important part of the story I wanted to tell, which was that of Mamie's journey and her becoming an activist and also the love and humanity that existed between her and her child. So narratively, it wasn't necessary. And it's, it's also horrific just to see the aftermath and then to, for everyone to be left to assume what, what they must have done to him. I'm really curious. Emmett's um, mutilated body in the film looks devastatingly similar to the photographs we've seen of it. What was the process of recreating the mutilated body? Did you work directly with the artist to create it? I did. Um, and I have to say it was a very harrowing process because I read and reread autopsy reports of what of what was done to Emmett and diagram and looked at diagrams and carefully examined the photograph and did a little bit of research about what a body being in water for three days does to like what that does to a body um, and having those conversations with the company that made the, the body um, starting with a mold of the actor who plays Emmett, Jalen Hall, and just going back and forth as the body was being built and getting more details and making sure it's as realistic as possible. And the actors in the scene 
um, the actors who interacted with the body, like Danielle and Sean Patrick Thomas, who plays Jean, they didn't see or touch the body until we were ready to shoot the scene. And so the very first time they saw it was on camera. I mean, that is that's so powerful to know, because also in the film, we don't see Emmett's body until Mamie is ready to see the body. Yes. We instead see her face in the room from her point of view. But when she does finally look, which then allows us to look, there is a tenderness to the way you direct that moment. You you bring the viewer as close as you can to seeing it from the mother's eyes. What was the process in coming up with this particular technique? And did you also use other options as you were you were finalizing the way that you wanted to present this really powerful scene? I was clear within myself early on in constructing my directorial vision for the film that this scene needed to be humanizing, not objectifying. And it needs to prioritize Mamie's emotional experience in seeing her son's body. And so I also knew that, and I communicated this to the crew, we were only going to shoot that scene in two takes because I didn't want to put Danielle, the actor, through that many times. So I had to be very, very precise within myself about how I wanted to shoot that. And so on the day, we found a great composition in the beginning of the scene where a table obstructs Emmett's body. And we just stay with Mamie and her emotional experience seeing her son. And I thought that that just so beautifully captures the privacy and the intimacy and the emotional subtext that I wanted to highlight in that scene. And I knew that when the camera does move in to start to see Emmett's body, Mamie is leading that. So we see his body as Mamie is going down and going up his body. And it's tender and it's loving. And the camera doesn't take that voyeuristic lens. We're with Mamie and her son. Director Chinoya Chuku speaking with Tanya Mosley. Chuku's new film is Till, about the mother of Emmett Till. We'll hear more of their conversation after a short break, and Ken Tucker will review Taylor Swift's new album. I'm Sam Brigger, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Our guest is writer and director Chinoya Chuku. Her new film is Till, about the 1955 lynching of Emmett Till, a 14-year-old boy from Chicago, who was murdered for allegedly flirting with a white woman while visiting family in Mississippi. The film is told from the perspective of his mother, Mamie Till Mobley, and shows how her decisions to publicly share what happened to her son became a catalyst for the civil rights movement. Chuku is Nigerian-American and grew up in Fairbanks, Alaska. She spoke to Fresh Air guest interviewer Tanya Mosley. How did you and your crew move through the emotional weight during the filming? The timing of the making of this film, it really was right on the heels of, of George Floyd's murder. Yeah, um... And I remember when I was working on the script, I, it, was, it was in the midst of the protests that were going on around the world. And so um, there was definitely an extra weight um, in the writing of it for me. Um, and uh, I, for me, I, I let a lot of my feelings and emotions out in the writing of it. There were a lot of tears. There was just a lot of feelings. And so I can compartmentalize as much as I can on set. But we're still human. And so myself and the producers were very intentional about protecting the 
mental and emotional well-being of everybody. So we had a therapist on set who was available to the cast and crew and was just such an invaluable resource in helping us process our feelings in real time. Um, the parents of the children, child actors, were on set um, and right, I, I wanted them as close as possible every day if possible. Um, and I, when I talk to their kids, I talk to them as well because they're also a part of this journey. I think about um, when we were shooting this scene where Emmett's abducted, the actor who plays Emmett, Jalen, who was 14 at the time, um, after a take or two, he had asked if we can pause so he can get a hug from his mom. And we just dropped everything so he can get a hug for his mom. And if Jalen would have told me, I don't want to do any more takes, then we wouldn't have done any more takes. <laughs> you know, we're human beings first and foremost. Um, those are some of the ways that we were really mindful of care. Also, there were just some scenes I limited to, to two takes because I just didn't want to go through that, put the actors through that repeatedly. And so I would tell the crew, listen, whatever we get in these takes is what's going to be in the film. So let's just make it as great as possible. But then we've got to move on. Janoya, you grew up very far away from the American South in Fairbanks, Alaska. (laughs) (laughs) I can only imagine how much of an anomaly you are in some spaces here in the lower 48, being a black woman from Alaska. I need to know, what was it like? I mean, like, really, what was it like? What was your neighborhood like where you grew up? What was your high school like? So what... I felt it was like in the moment versus my reflections on it now as a 37-year-old are different. (laughs) You know, I appreciate it a lot more looking back. You know, I lived in what would be equivalent to the suburbs, you know, in Fairbanks, Alaska, suburbs-ish, you know, I mean, Fairbanks is a town. And um, that was predominantly white, uh, but my parents who are petroleum engineers and Nigerian immigrants, um, they were very intentional about you know, finding communities with, you know, other Africans and um, children of immigrants. And, and so I, I, was, I was amongst that community as well. Um, you know, at the time when I was a teenager in Fairbanks, I was struggling with deep depression. And uh, that was exacerbated by my seasonal affective disorder. You know, in the winter, it gets quite dark, as you can imagine. And so it was, it was a real struggle for me. And also just kind of navigating my own identity crisis as, you know, some, a child of Nigerian immigrants who I would go back home to Nigeria often. And, you know, it's when I go back to Nigeria, I'm too American. When I'm in America, I'm out of place either just by my blackness or by my Nigerianness, or, you know, amongst other African Americans, just sometimes critiquing my blackness based on, you know, growing up in Alaska or being a child of Nigerian immigrants. Um, and so in the moment as a teenager, it was a very dark time and my depression was masked by my work. I was the president of multiple organizations in high school. I was in all the clubs. I was staying at school till 9 p.m. at times, just in after-school activities and just busying myself so I don't have to deal with that deep, penetrating feeling of sadness that I, and I was actively avoiding. And so nobody knew. Nobody knew that I was dying inside and deeply depressed and confused and insecure because on the outside, I was an overachiever. When did this revelation come to you and to others that you were depressed? You said that nobody really knew. 
so I had a moment when I was 14 um, where I almost took my own life. And I remember it like it was yesterday and I, there was a voice and I, I just wanted the pain to stop, essentially. I just, I was, it was middle of the night, I was sobbing. I just wanted the pain to stop. And there was a small voice in my head that just said, give it one more day. Whatever happens tomorrow, okay, but just give it one more day. And I kept hearing that voice until I decided maybe there's a reason for me to stay alive. And I was still depressed, but I was starting to lean into living a bit more. And by the time I got to college, I decided enough was enough. I need to really be intentional about what living looks like, what joy looks like. And that requires getting a hold of the depression and really confronting myself in a way that I haven't before. And it wasn't until maybe possibly like my late 20s that I really started openly talking about it with my close friends and what that feeling was like and, and then started talking, sharing that with, with other people more publicly so there isn't a stigma attached to being depressed or that kind of journey. Hmm. The other thing that um, I read that at least when you were younger, you would create your own worlds through writing. You dreamed in scenes. Do you remember some of the fantasies that you created? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when I was 13, I was obsessed with Julia Roberts because that was when she had like the string of rom-coms, you know, like Runaway Bride, Notting Hill, My Best Friend's Wedding. I was obsessed, okay? And I would rewrite those films with either me as the protagonist or like another black girl who looked like me as a protagonist. And I was also at that time when I was like coming into my feelings about boys and just all of that. And so I was living this kind of like fantasy life through Julia Roberts movies. (laughs) And I remember rewriting them in my green journal at 13 years old and storyboarding (laughs) some of the scenes. Um, yeah, you know, I listened, I remember in college, I listened to a lot of Nina Simone and I got a lot of inspiration listening to some Nina Simone writing different scenes and scripts um, as well. But it was escape, you know, especially as a child, it was escape. It was a way for me to get outside of myself and the, the dark space I was in and just imagine worlds and possibilities beyond Fairbanks, Alaska. Chinoya Chuku, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you, and thank you for the really thoughtful, insightful questions. Chinoya Chuku's new film, Till, about the mother of Emmett Till, is in theaters now. She spoke to Fresh Air guest contributor Tanya Mosley. Taylor Swift's new studio album, her 10th, is called Midnights, which she describes as, quote, the story of 13 sleepless nights scattered throughout my life. Rock critic Ken Tucker says there's certainly a late-night dreaminess to its sound, but also a bracing amount of Swift's clear-headed thoughts about love and life as a pop star. On the day of its release, Midnight set a record for being the most streamed album in a single day on both Spotify and Apple Music. Here's Ken's review. Staring at the ceiling with you Oh, you don't ever say too much 
Taylor Swift begins her new album with Lavender Haze. Woozy and dreamy in a manner that befits a collection called Midnight's, Lavender Haze has a jittery snare drum hook. The song pulses beneath a lyric about being, quote-unquote, under scrutiny. But she's not whining. She's conceding she likes attention and uses it for her own purposes. She is, as she sings on this song, a mastermind of her romantic life, of her career. Once upon a time, the planet's in the face and all the stars aligned. You and I ended up in the same room at the same time. And the touch of a hand lit the fuse of a chain reaction of counter moves to assess the equation of you. Checkmate, I couldn't lose What if I told you none of it was accidental And the first night that you saw me Nothing was gonna stop me I laid the groundwork and then Just like clockwork The dominoes cascaded in a line What if I told you I'm a mastermind? Mastermind is all about looking back at your past And declaring that that's how you planned it to happen It's a song that combines self-delusion with self-confidence and contains one of the best lines anyone's ever written about Taylor Swift. Quote, I swear, I'm only cryptic and Machiavellian because I care. Say what you will about this immensely popular woman whose self-absorption drives some people crazy, she's also gloriously self-aware. Just listen to the song Antihero. On Antihero, Swift really owns it. I'm the problem. It's me, she says, repeatedly. At another point, castigating what she terms her covert narcissism. Really, this is the kind of singer-songwriter confession some of us used to hope Carly Simon or John Mayer would eventually admit to. In the spirit of sisterhood, Swift invites the contemporary master of film noir pop, Lana Del Rey, to collaborate on a surreal landscape painting called Snow on the Beach. One night, a few moons ago, I saw flags of what could have been lights, but it might just have been you passing by unbeknownst to me. Life is emotionally abusive, and time can't stop me quite like you did in my flight. Was awful. Thanks for asking. I'm unglued. Thanks to you. And it's like snow at the beach. Weird, but it was beautiful. Flying in a dream. Stars by the pocket full. You wanting me tonight feels impossible. But it's coming down. No sound. It's all around. 
For her Midnight Reveries, Swift has employed a familiar collaborator, producer Jack Antonoff, who's now worked on no fewer than six of her albums. Together, they've built a new sound for her. Percolating synthesizers largely replace the guitars that began her career. Her voice is pushed forward to become a conversational murmur. Her writing is dominated by the lovely rhyming quatrains she composes so tightly, so rigorously, that any minor flaw as when she uses the phrase, break a smile, when anyone else would say, crack a smile, you wonder if she did it on purpose, to mess with your mind. Baby love, I think I've been a little too kind. Didn't notice you walking all over my peace of mind. And the shoes I gave you as a present. Putting someone first only works when you're in their top five. And by the way, I'm going out tonight. Believe I'm still bejeweled When I walk in the room I can still make the whole place shimmer And when I meet the band They ask do you have a man I can still say I don't remember Familiarity breeds contempt So put me in the basement Taylor Swift came to prominence as a teenager strumming vivid lyrics too artful to be dismissed as country diary entries. She's now a 30-something who toys languidly with her fans' supposed knowledge of her. Few musicians disseminate such pleasure by exerting such steely control. Summer went away, still the yearning stays. I play it cool with the best of them. Ken Tucker reviewed Taylor Swift's new album called Midnights. Coming up, filmmaker and writer Ramona Emerson will talk about her novel Shudder. It's about a forensic photographer who, like Emerson, grew up in the Navajo Nation. The photographer is haunted by the ghosts of victims from crime scenes she's photographed. I'm Sam Brigger, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. When your first novel gets longlisted for the National Book Award for Fiction, you must be doing something right. That's the place our guest Ramona Emerson found herself this year with her supernatural crime thriller, Shudder. Shudder's hero is Rita Tadachitni, a forensic photographer for the Albuquerque Police Department. If you don't know, a forensic photographer's job is to document all the details of a crime scene. The novel starts with Rita driving up to one. The police have closed a part of the highway where a suspected suicide has occurred. As she leaves the scene, she is confronted by the victim's ghost, who insists she was murdered, and pressures Rita to revenge her. Rita's not terribly shocked by the ghost visitation, as she's been seeing ghosts all her life. But this ability has caused her a lot of trouble especially as she is Navajo, or Diné, as the Navajos call themselves. And in the Diné culture, there are many taboos around death. Rita reluctantly gets drawn into the case, which involves corrupt police and the Sinaloa drug cartel. The crime story of Shudders interwoven with chapters about Rita's upbringing in Tohatchi, New Mexico, which is in the Navajo Nation, and her close relationship with her grandmother, her primary caregiver. The first draft of those chapters was originally meant to be part of a memoir, And if you look at Ramona Emerson's life, you'll see she shares quite a few similarities with her character Rita, although I don't think Ramona sees ghosts. Emerson also grew up in Tehachie with her grandmother and was a forensic videographer and photographer for 16 years in Albuquerque, where she lives. Ramona Emerson is also a documentary filmmaker and owns a production company with her husband called Real, as in film reel, Indian Pictures. Ramona Emerson, welcome to Fresh Air. 
Thank you so much, Sam, and it's good to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. I was wondering if maybe we could start with you doing a short passage from the book, and this is the beginning of Shudder, um, where your main character, Rita, is showing up at the scene of this crime. Absolutely. It is chapter one, which is prefaced the Nikon D50, 18 55mm DX. Souls don't scatter like the rest of the body. They latch on for as long as they can, their legs pulled to the sky, fingertips white in desperation. Souls are grasping for us, for the ones they left behind, and for the truth only they can see. They are the best witnesses to their last breaths. I stand in that bitter cold wind with that ghost and take its picture. Tonight, nothing was left. After two hours of metal on bone and flesh on asphalt, there were only yellow plastic forensic markers lined up like soldiers on the darkened freeway, all 75 of them marking the resting place of this soul who was now merged with the blacktop, the blood and tissue part of its earth and chemicals. I watched the lead investigator lay another marker in the distance, 76. I knew then that I would be out here for hours. I clawed into my last pack of nicotine gum, pulling two pieces from the foil, and jerked myself into my paper suit and latex skin. Neither did anything to cut the cold. I ducked beneath the tape. We were always the first on the scene, the photographers. Next month would be 66 months for me, five and a half years of taking pictures of dead people. Thanks for reading that. That's Ramona Emerson reading from her novel, Shudder. So, I mean, the book begins with this really horrific crime scene. This woman's body is strewn all across the highway after being run over by multiple vehicles. Um, it, it was actually pretty hard for me to read parts of that section. Um, why did you want to start the novel that way? Well, I think I really wanted people to have a very stark introduction into what it's like to work forensics. And... Um, I mean, I had worked forensics, and um, I had attended the Albuquerque Police Department civilian CSI course, and this was the first case that I learned about. And the case, we saw photos, we saw the you know the crime seed maps, we saw all of the um, the reporting, and it really hit home to me about what forensics is about and what the people who work in forensics have to go through, and what they see. Um, so I really wanted people to understand Rita's world immediately and understand just how tough it is to do the work that she does. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the amazing thing is that Rita's really able to focus on her job here, despite how terrible the crime scene is. She is just really concentrating on documenting all the evidence and getting a really sharp focus with her camera, even though when she's training the, her camera on something deeply upsetting. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's something that it just becomes kind of learned when you're when you're working forensics especially as a photographer or a videographer when i first started i think those first 2 years of my job it was tough for me i would have nightmares at night i would carry um their the images um that i had in my head with me for months um and it it took a, quite a bit of time for me to realize and and to grasp the fact that we are there to provide justice for these victims, we're there to make sure that we're documenting the scene correctly 
in order that they um, have a good case or, you know, they have a good outcome um, for their families. And so it becomes more of a quest for justice. It becomes more mm -hmm. of a um, you need to do your job the right way. And it's all about color. It's all about measurement. It's all about getting the, the details right. And you just kind of have to push to the back of your mind that this is somebody's daughter, that this is somebody's mom. So, I mean, you weren't visited by ghosts, but you were haunted by this work. Yes. Yeah, I haven't, I've only had a few or a couple of real incidents where I had maybe kind of paranormal experiences, but, and it was after I wrote the book, um, strangely really? enough. So, yeah, I mean, I never really, I was on the fence about whether, you know, ghosts existed or not. I mean, I have watched enough paranormal shows to like roll my eyes and those guys getting scaring themselves at their paranormal investigations but um you know so I, I was kind of on the fence but I had a couple of things happen to me that kind of freaked me out and it, it, it made me wonder you know it really it did make me wonder um so but no I did not see the ghosts but I but you just can't help but take those people's stories home with you and you can't help but wonder I wonder how their kids are doing or how their mom and dad are are coping so Rita's able to see people's ghosts, and she's been able to do this for as long as she can remember. Um, and then in, in your story, she's haunted by the victim of this crime that opens the novel. Um, the spirit wants her to solve her murder or really just get revenge. But how, how did this idea come to you? Well, I knew that Rita was going to be haunted. And so when I decided to do the opening scene, I knew for a fact that this lady would not would not be able to go on to the next world without having some kind of justice. And so I just started developing this profile of Irma Singleton and how um, she is, what she would do, what her background was, all the things that were going against her, you know, and why would she need revenge? What was she involved in? All the, I mean, that was one of the first character profiles I began to develop um, because I really started to think about why would somebody be so hell-bent on revenge that they would come back from the dead to get it? And the one, the one constant for me that I could always think of was a mother. A mother will do anything um, for her kids and as a mother myself, I thought about what would happen if somebody did that to a mom and they were leaving their kids behind. Wouldn't they want revenge? Wouldn't they be so chuffed that <laughs> somebody took their life away that they weren't going to be able to spend the rest of their life watching their children grow up? And for me, that was like the biggest point of contention that I could think of. And I turned it over to Arma Singleton because that is really her drive, is her child. Rita's grandmother finds out that she's seen ghosts, and it really freaks her out. I mean, it would probably freak out any grandparent, but uh, this also plays into a taboo about death in the Diné culture. Can you talk about that? Sure. I mean, I think um, when we're growing up on the reservation, we are always told not to talk about it. Um, it's almost as if if you talk about death, you're asking for it. You talk about somebody getting sick uh, from a certain disease and I was always told, you don't talk about that because it's like you're asking for that for yourself. You're asking for death to come to you. And it has always just been something you don't talk about. And um, I wanted to really examine, you know, where 
that belief came from. And I did a lot of research um, about when Navajos really started to have this um, concrete belief and, and fear of death. And I, I, just in the research that I did, I was noticing that a lot of that came out of the Spanish flu epidemic where a lot of Navajos died. And in the process of the sickness, you know, like removing people from their homes, not allowing them to die with their families, having people having to come in and walk somebody into death. Um, Which happens in your book with your grandmother's grandmother, reader's grandmother's mother. Yeah. That's why I included that, because I really wanted people to look at how that flu epidemic really affected the way that we really believe about death. Because in the in another way, I really believe that earlier, before that, in our old, old ways, that we really believed that we were moving on to the next world. It wasn't something to fear. It was our It was our movement into our next stage of life. But somewhere along the way, and I feel like it's the Spanish flu, we became so afraid of it that it was something like, you can't even talk about it. Don't even say it because you're going to get it. You're going to get that flu. You're going to get sick. And then while I was writing or editing this and finishing up the book, of course, we were in the middle of the pandemic. And it was really kind of like, wow, um, this is a real issue. And I think people right now are taking advantage of the, the fact that Navajos are so fearful of death. I think the funerary industry has a lot of uh, investment in that fear as far as it goes for Navajo communities and for Navajo people. I think they take advantage of our fear. And so I think it's really important that we talk about it. It was also very difficult for me to write this because I was afraid of how other Diné would think of me writing things like this. Yeah, was there a reaction to your book? I have had nothing but positive reactions so far. I actually had uh, a weekend where I went to Gallup, which is just right outside of my community of Tohatchi, and we, we set up a booth at the um, Gallup flea market and we sold the book and my dear mentor, Dr. Jennifer Dinettdale came with me and she was hawking that book. I love her. <laughs> she was like, come on, you like to watch that zombie stuff. You better come and read a Diné novelist. Look, she's right here. She'll sign your book. Boy, everybody came over and bought a book. And I'd say half of the people that came and bought a book and were interested in it were from Tohatchi, and I couldn't have been more pleased um, to see them and to see that they were they read the they read the blurb on the back and they weren't afraid. Um, and you know the way Dr. Danette Dell explains it to me, she goes, "Yeah, you know we have these traditional beliefs, and everybody always says, yeah, yeah, you know, don't talk about that or whatever." She goes, "But in reality, we all know that all these Danette go home and watch The Walking Dead, and they watch all that." CSI stuff, so don't even get me started. And so she was like, so don't worry. I think it's going to be okay. Rita's grandmother takes her to see the medicine man so that her work in forensics and also this supernatural ability like, won't make her sick. And her grandmother's always telling Rita to like, send, send me your clothes so I can bring them to the medicine man to purify them. It sounds like your grandmother sent you to visit the medicine man too for your work in forensics. Is that right? Yes, <laughs> she did. I think she was shocked when I told her what I, I told her I got a job. She was very happy <laughs> yeah, for me. Yeah. First um, reaction then, is happy. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. You know, kind of thing. And then I told her what it was. And she was like, what? Um, and I said, but it's not all the time. You know, sometimes I'm just video They're Most of the time they're alive. Grandma, don't freak out. You know, um, I'm, you know, doing work. Uh, but there were like some early scenes. I had to process some photography and some video 
um, of accident scenes and I think a construction uh, scene accident uh, where a gentleman was crushed and anyway I, I had to and also another pipeline explosion scene um, that we had to process and enlarge some very large some very gruesome photographs of a pipeline explosion um, and it oh I had nightmares for a couple of weeks about that but you know my grandma knew things like she knew when something was wrong. I call her on the phone. She knew she could hear she it could in hear my voice it. and right. she knew. And she would be like, I don't know what's going on with you right now, but you take your clothes off, whatever you're wearing right now, you send it to me. And I would, and she would take them. Cause I was just, I would get so busy that I couldn't go home. Yes. But also I was avoiding it. <laughs> I think I didn't want my grandma to deal with it. And I didn't want to have to go to the medicine man every time I got a bad vibe so I just learned to toughen toughen up and get through it and not tell grandma and eventually I just stopped telling her um, what was going on and eventually it just stopped bothering me so much you know when you would send your grandmother your clothes so that uh, she could take them to the medicine man like how long would it take to get your clothes back like would you be <laughs> like walking around your house and be like where are my jeans like oh yeah they're with the medicine man like... well you know she'd always um Whenever I saw her next, she had my clothes. And she usually, if I had, I was wearing holy f pants, like my jeans were torn, my pants would always come back with patches yeah. on them. <laughs> All washed and patched. So it's like full service. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I was, I thought I was so cool, you know, with my holy jeans and then <laughs> might get them back and she patched them up. <laughs> like, Grandma, you ruined my cool jeans. She was like, ah, you know, I don't want you looking like a hobo walking around town in those torn up jeans. Um, do you have any memories about visiting the medicine man with your grandmother? Yes, I do. Well, I do remember a lot of them when I was younger. Um, when I was a teenager, I was a smoker. I had smoked cigarettes sometimes, and uh, I would always hide it from my grandma because that was like the worst thing I could do. Your body's a temple, she used to tell me. And... So when I knew that I was going to see my grandma or the medicine man, I would not smoke for like two days. And I would have a shower, like all nice, new clothes that didn't smell like cigarettes, nothing. And I would show up at the medicine man and he would hug me and he would tell me, I can tell you're smoking. He knew, like, even if I tried to hide it and I didn't, and I went for days without it or whatever, he was like, you need to stop smoking. I know you're smoking. We all know. Like they knew you'd hide it. Whatever you were doing, you're getting bad grades. They knew. It was magical. Would you feel better after going to visit the medicine man? Like, would that sort of calm your feelings about the traumas you were witnessing? Yes and no. I think the the relief was the fact that my grandma felt better. My grandma. So you did felt it for better. her. Yeah, and I, for me, I was always kind of on the fence about that, about whether, um, you know, going to the medicine man really worked. <laughs> and I was telling my grandma, you know, uh, she used to go to church too, you know, she used to very devout Catholic as well. So I was always like, well, grandma, you know, which is it? <laughs> well, that's an interesting thing in your book. You have your grandma on her rearview mirror. She has like a medicine pouch hanging right by a crucifix. I thought that was a really interesting image. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's a dichotomy that uh, a lot of indigenous people, especially in New Mexico, can relate to. Because I think a lot of us are, a lot of our indigenous communities still practice our, our traditional ways. But then we also have the influence of the church, which has also been kind of brought into our traditions and brought into our communities. So, yeah, it's part of it. And, um, you know, and my grandma used to always say, it's just best to keep all your bases covered. 
And um, so, you know, just in case. Um, so, but for me, I was always on the fence because I also went to Catholic school and I didn't believe in that either. I'm kind of an atheist, agnostic kind of person. And so my grandma understood that about me pretty quickly and uh, realized that I was probably doing a lot of that for her. <laughs> well, Ramona Emerson, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me, Sam. I really appreciated it. And I'm so glad that you enjoyed Shudder. Oh, I very much did. Thank you. Ramona Emerson's crime thriller is called Shudder. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. For Terry Gross, I'm Sam Brigger. 